listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. My teacher was really into a certain approach towards this work that while he was really deeply ensconced in the whole Zen aspect of everything, he was also um, able to kind of tease out a very practical uh, language in relationship to awakening and how we can uncover that or meet with that in our, uh, in our day-to-day. And so one of the things that he kept hammering home again and again and again as, uh, as I was a young, young monk with slightly more hair than I have now, uh, he, he said, the key to awakening is to become truly intimate with each moment. The key to awakening is to become truly intimate with each moment. And intimacy is such a cool word, I thought, because the way I'd always developed a relationship with the word intimacy was through either sexual or relational intimacy with another being. And I never really thought of being um, sexual or relational with the present moment. Uh, didn't, didn't, it never really registered, which was cool because what it did is it forced a reconsideration of the word intimacy. And quite simply what he meant at least this is my interpretation, is that if we are really actually close with what's going on, as it's going on, we then have an ability to allow whatever is going on to lead us right into opening, right into enlightenment, right into awakening. And I, of course, approached him, and so it's kind of like dancing, the intimacy that one experiences in dancing. It's relational, but it's also, it's a little bit of push and pull. It's a little bit of, you know, it's, it's a little, you have to know what the other person is kind of feeling. You're hearing the same music, but your reactions to it might be a little bit different. You have to be able to read the person from a place that's beyond the thinking mind. And he, of course, really liked this. He was a, also a tango, tango dancer and so forth, which I know sounds strange to having a Zen master as a rather proficient tango guy, but uh, no doubt he, he was quite, he and his wife were, it's beautiful watching him dance. But this then guided me, I think, in a really, really interesting way, being intimate 
letting the teaching be intimate in your experience. And what this brings up is a whole bunch of really cool stuff in relationship to teacher-student because there's, there are very few, very few uh, uh, relationships that are more intimate than teacher-student, if you really think about it. And it's not obviously sexual. It's not in a covetous space. It's in fact, in a much more profound way, something that is about being able to stay right next to each other without letting your traditional definitions of intimacy affect a move. And so really, what are we looking for here? I mean, everyone on the spiritual path is typically looking for answers. And one of the great ways that you can speed up the process is to instead look for questions. What are the questions that you have? The answers really don't matter. The questions are actually what give your work traction. My job and any teacher's job is to relentlessly keep the heat on. It's to keep pushing you into that space, keeping you, if you will, on the path. And when you get off the path, essentially just asking, oh, so how does that feel? Not, oh, let me get you out. Then you create a dependency. Instead, it's like, how does that feel? Oh, you're in the mud right now? Ah, how's that feel? Dirty, huh? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You want to get out? Oh, okay. Well, what's your question? How do I get out of the mud? Oh, okay. Well, here's some things you might want to think about. But in that space, what it does is it allows for the student to allow for their ego to be still part of their experience, but no longer the dominant force. And it allows the teacher to offer up guidance. A teacher, hopefully, will never tell you what to do. That kind of screws up the whole mystery of it, okay? But I'll give you an example of one of the things that, the, and this happened years ago, and it keeps happening again and again and again, so I know that it's either endemic to this sangha or it's part of the, uh, the spiritual path, but it always cracks me up. People will approach me and they'll, in like, let's say, um, uh, the one-on-one -on -one interview we call Dokasan, they'll approach me in Dokasan and say, you know, I was going to ask this during Q&A, but I didn't want to sound stupid. Wow. That's cool. You really? You didn't want to sound stupid? Why not? Well, <laughs> because I want to be seen as smart. They didn't say that, of course, but it's a really fascinating thing. I didn't want to sound stupid. Well, on the one hand, every one of us in here, myself included, can understand that. On the other hand, it's the job of the student to fearlessly risk looking like a fool. It's the job of the teacher to remain fearlessly unattached to anyone's foolishness. This way we can keep the heat on. This way what happens is it's as if, it's as if everyone in the Sangha can begin to burn. 
okay? When we allow ourselves to go, I have no idea what you just said, Mike. Absolutely clueless as to what that meant. Can you help me out there? Boom, beautiful stuff can happen in that moment. Or I, uh, my ego says that that's totally wrong. Ah, now we have something to work with. But it's a two-way street. Students got a job, teachers got a job, and then also there's a third part of this experience. The sangha's got a job. The sangha's got a job, and that and the sangha's job is to actually create a container wherein this conversation can happen, where doubt, where certitude where all these things that very naturally come up on the spiritual path can play themselves out in a container. And that open container allows for all of this to begin actually creating seeds in the mud. And all of us know what happens to the most beautiful, in my view, the most beautiful of all flowers, the lotus. Where does the lotus come from? It comes from the mud. It comes from the dank, mucky stuff. <laughs> at the bottom of typically really, uh, in many cases, awful ponds. And then, boom, there's just this beautiful opening. That's where everything meets in that space. And so I want to make sure that we allow for each of us to be intimate with the teaching, with our search with our flaws, with our strengths? Can we be intimate with all those things? Can we be intimate with what it means to be part of a Sangha? Can we be intimate with what it means to not know? Can, be, can we be intimate with this charge that I'm kind of throwing at you, which is to begin to question? Especially what I say. Question what I say. I'm not giving you facts. I'm not giving you truth. I'm giving you stuff wherein you can begin to take the steps necessary to uncover questions that point you to truth. So whatever's going on right now in you, let it be there. Begin to question. Begin to develop an intimacy with not knowing. Begin to develop an intimacy with everything you feel certain about and everything you doubt, everything you love, everything you hate, and everything in between. <clears throat> Doing so allows you to just be. And there's an art to that. And that art is expressed when we sit in meditation. Shall we sit?
one of the great spiritual questions that any of us can ask ourselves is what am I? What are you? There was a, an experience I had as a 16-year-old and I was in the pool. I spent, I spent as much time in the pool as I did in bed, pretty much. It was just one of those great rigorous training exercises that they have teenagers do, you know, six and a half hour swim workouts, three hours in the morning, three and a half in the afternoon, and somehow that's a good thing. I don't know. Um, but I wouldn't have traded it. I loved it <laughs> still. Uh, it was just so much work and so many yards every day. And all you had is, and for those of you who are swimmers, you know this, all you had was the, the stripe in the bottom of the pool. At least when we run, you've got scenery. There's not scenery with that stripe per se. Uh, and then you hope you don't bump into the, the feet of the person in front of you if you're going fast and they're slowing down, whatever. It's just, it was just, I look back on it and it's remarkable. Anyway, there was this Saturday morning workout and we were swimming uh, a set of middle distance 200s. I'll never forget, I, I don't know why this was so vivid to me, but I remember the exhaustion was so intense and we were keeping up this just really brutal, brutal pace. And it kept going and going. And I remember it kind of started, stuff started to get a little fuzzy. And I thought, I may, I may pass out here, but I'll just kind of keep going. And, you know, I had a couple of, uh, this was back in the days when you'd take raw eggs before workout, you know, so you could have protein in your body. Now you're not supposed to do that because you get really bad salmonella while you're in the water. <laughs> but uh, so I thought, maybe I'm going to throw up. Uh, hopefully I won't. Um, and the girls team was with us, so that would have been really bad because then I would never have gotten any dates. But I'm swimming along. and. As I, as I am going through the motions, I'm realizing that I have no bodily sensation going on at all. I cannot feel my body, yet I'm still hitting the time. I'd come into the wall, and I had no idea where my, my body was not. It was just the most bizarre experience. And it wasn't out of body. It was no body. Does that kind of make, make sense? It was just no body. There was no feeling. I found out shortly thereafter that runners, especially middle distance runners, experience this as well, especially the half milers, those that are running the 880. It's a sprint. But the body typically is in such you know, profound shape for the half milers that there's no pacing. You just go. And there's very often the beta endorphins kick in, the brain, and all sorts of stuff happens. But beyond that, what was really kind of bizarre was that I found myself as I was swimming, there was laughter. And I was gasping for air and cracking up. And, and it was because I, I, there was this, this very slow, uh, the, the word I want to come up with is smooth thing going on in my mind, which was, who am I? I am not this and I am not that. It was just this kind of bizarre mantra that was kind of happening in my head. And it lasted probably for, I don't know, a half hour or so, and I kind of came out of it. It's like I was shaking myself out of it and so forth. 
And I remembered after it happened, I want to know, I, I want to be able to contextualize that in some way. And there was no way I could do it as a high school um, junior. Uh, I was at the high tide of egoic clinging, and there was no way to understand what no mind, no body, no self would have meant. There's utter, complete, and total freedom and no pain. That's a long time, 30 minutes. Yeah. It was. Because it seems to me that usually a sensation like that would be more fleeting or more, I don't know, 30 minutes to me seems like a very, very long time. Yeah, now are you clinging to that? <laughs> yeah. Watch that. Because that's what prevents the opening. Yeah. Okay? Mm. And that's exactly what kept that 30 minutes from becoming 30 years. Okay? So what we look for is what is looking. In this work, what we look for is what is doing the looking. And in the pool that day, what was doing the looking was something that had nothing to do with me. And every one of you can have an experience like this. It's not necessarily going to be in the pool or on the track or whatever. But we get there when we let go. When we start considering who it is that we are. I talked about this briefly last week, but if every single one of you in this room would let go of your primary identity, whatever that is. Is your primary identity that you are female, that you are father, that you are mother, sister, citizen? What is your primary identity? Take that. Notice it. If that was no longer there, what would you be? What would be left? What would be your secondary identity? Is it any one of those things I just talked about? Maybe it's a little more subtle. Maybe it's even a mood. I am depressed. I am at peace. I am. There's an addition to just being. It's included there. How about the tertiary aspect of who you are? Who's that? What happened if you let go of the primary and the secondary? What if you let go of your ethnicity? What if you let go, whatever it is, what if you let go of your opinions? If you just left them? What if you let go of your personality? What if that wasn't there? What if your personality wasn't there? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. My personality is what makes me so damn charming. <laughs> well, I got news for you. If you're one of those, you make sure that you get a teacher that doesn't fall for your charms. That's going to help a lot. Uh, it was amazing when I was entering into practice, and I thought I was carrying a lot of knowledge in, you know, and my teacher would just look at me, and I'd think, you know, he's going to be impressed if I can, you know, give a little analysis here of uh, this particular sutra or something like that. And I'll never forget this one time I did that very thing. I kind of walked in and go, you know, I'm reading the uh, Lankavatara Sutra, you know, the really difficult one. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, I just, yeah, my question for you in this dokusan here is, uh, 
you know, and I, I remember I remember coming up with something about the very technical term, the alaya, and so forth. And I'm asking him about that, and he looks at me and he just goes like this. He goes, <laughs> just yawns. He just yawns and says, "How's your meditation going?" And I was like, because my meditation sucked. I wasn't able to be still. I was too busy studying. I was trying to be clever. I was trying to rely on all those charms that I'd honed so beautifully during high school and college. You know? Worth, basically what he was saying with that yawn was, worthless here. Get out. Come at me when you have a real question, punk. You know? Now, he didn't say that, but that was exactly what it felt like. And it was like, oh my God, I'm in exactly the right place. What happens when that, which always has worked for you, no longer works? What's left? What are you? Are you this body that you're in right now? Is it a different body now than it was five years ago? 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah, it's different, isn't it? And it will be different as you move ahead. Your body is temporary, okay? So the timeless aspect of you cannot be just your body. The timeless aspect of you, you might say, well, it might be my personality because it's always been exactly the same since I was five. Well, let's hope not. <laughs> Let's hope there's been a few shifts <laughs> since that five-year-old little blessing that walked through the kindergarten doors, which is probably pretty cute. For every one of, every one of us at five was probably pretty damn cute. But you've also added so much experience. So it's shifted too, even. Your personality, which comes from persona, which is Greek for mask. What happens if you take that mask off? If you leave that mask, what's underneath it? What about your mind? Anybody ever uh, felt like their mind is slipping? Hmm. Sure. Yeah. Are you that? Are you your mind? Are you your achievements? We are what we achieve, and is that it? My guess is that you're able to kind of see that you are all of these things in some capacity, that you are indeed what you achieve, and you are indeed your body, and you are indeed your personality, and your mind, and your opinions, and ultimately your legacy, and yet every one of those things is totally insubstantial on its own. Every one of those things is like, it's like trying to grab air it's just, it's fleeting. And so what is timeless? What is that truth beyond name and form that is you? What's the thing that inspires uproarious giggles when you are totally exhausted at the pool staring at a stupid line? What's the thing in you that fleeting, whether it's a fleeting experience or one of great length, allows you to go, oh, 
There's grace and ease underneath all of this, actually. What is that? What is this thing called self? I'm not going to pretend to have an answer. You get to do that work. But I do have some interesting bits of advice from various traditions that I thought were pretty cool. Um, this one you're probably familiar with. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things of the universe. This is Dogen, one of the founders of the Soto Zen lineage that I uh, uh, was, you know, into which I was kind of, uh, I was trained. How do you say it? I don't know. <laughs> Dogen was this uh, guy, okay? Let's just leave it at that. Um, his wisdom blows me away continually. And I think this is such a beautiful thing. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. He goes on, to be enlightened by all things of the universe is to cast off the body and the mind of the self as well as those of others. Even the traces of enlightenment are wiped out. And life with traceless enlightenment goes on forever and ever. What a beautiful way to put it. Or we can look at it this way. From Genesis. And God said, let us make man in our image. In the literal, confined, contracted sense, this, for someone who has a very limited and contracted view, God looks like me. Or we could twist it around. I am the universe. I am the universe, the one song that is playing and has always played. This out of uh, Luke. You won't see signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. It won't be a matter of saying, hey, here it is, or there, look. The kingdom of God is within you. Within you. The confined or the expansive you? Both. God doesn't stop at your egoic boundary. It's still there. What's the trick here? Realizing that God does not stop at your egoic boundary. I was a secret treasure and I created the creatures in order that I might be known. This from Islam. This is one of the uh, uh, from Islamic law, the hadith, hadith from uh, Islamic law. I'll say that again. This is beautiful. I was a secret treasure, and I created the creatures in order that I might be known. God seeing herself through creation. Creation seeing God by studying the self, becoming enlightened by all things.
This also from the Quran. We indeed create man and we know what his soul whispers within him and we are nearer to him than his jugular vein. Isn't this interesting? We as in plural, we as in all things, as in enlightened by. That awakening to this, this truth beyond name and form is closer to us than our own skin. This is from the Talmud. Torah abides only within him who regards himself as no thing. Every one of them pointing us in exactly the same direction. Study this thing called self. Study this thing called self. This is one of my favorites from Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. <laughs> Hope you're getting the theme here. What is this self? And it's exactly what has puzzled and inspired some really brilliant, brilliant stuff. And we, we get glimpses of no self when there is no mind. And we get glimpses of no mind when we are neither caught by past or future, when we are just present or in the now or however you want to call it. That there is a timeless nature to that that doesn't die. Or put another way, it is always beyond life. It is always dead. And when you experience that death before you die, you never die. So I'm bringing this up because it's one of the most difficult things, I think, to communicate in Western language to seekers. Because after all, a seeker is constantly seeking. They're constantly looking for something to grab onto, to give a deeper, a better, a more profound understanding. And in fact, where each of these bits of wisdom is pointing us is, well, what is that seeker? What is it that is doing the seeking? What does the seeker think it's going to get? It, will the seeker do anything once it realizes awakening? What will happen to the seeker then? It's still going to try to keep seeking because that's its job. So be really careful about your seeking. Because the seeker is not the finder. It's not the realizer. The seeker is constantly moving. Awakening shows up right in front of the seeker, and the seeker is going to be looking behind it. What's next? No, you're not it, you know. It's convinced that it's somewhere. You look cool, but, right? It's not quite it. And so perhaps a really interesting approach might be to loosen your shoes a little. Back up instead of push forward. 
study this self. Study this idea that you have called self. Whenever you hear in your head either a repetitious dialogue or you think, I am blank, just know that whatever you put after am is only partial. I am happy. Yeah, cool. That's marvelous. Is that it? Well, no, I'm actually more than happy. Well, then you are limiting yourself instead of am, which is infinite, being, which is infinite. The I then gets chunked. It gets compartmentalized. It gets contracted and divided. And in that division, it doesn't feel whole. And when it doesn't feel whole, it's continually defending itself against perceived attack. It's at war, or at least it's at non-peace. It's at non-ease, dis-ease, disease. Studying the self actually helps to create a deeper unification beyond all this duality, beyond the mind, beyond the body, beyond everything that shifts over time, beyond our identification with whatever it might be. And we get there through stillness. Stillness shows us the way in ways that we don't, we don't have to really do anything. Just be still. Be still. Be still. job is to ask questions. Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right. All right. All of this, you know, getting rid of the self and the, you know, your, all these different roles. Wait. Getting rid of the self. <laughs> I never said that, I hope. Well, all right. Because that's what? That's attaching to non-self, Okay. right? I'm saying become intimate with the self, study the self. Okay. So there's a huge difference. I just want to make sure that that's really clear. Okay. Okay. I just want to say that sometimes it feels like disintegration to me. It feels like the process is disintegration and I literally see myself as okay it's very scary to me good then it's working it's and I want to pull everything back so that I'm I am I so that I am what so that I'm not disintegrating and just floating out there in pieces right but you're floating out there in pieces now what you think is whole is actually illusion based on where this teaching takes us. We start recognizing that there's a whole nother level, a whole nother order of integration that feels like disintegration. Oh, that helps. Okay, so, so then let, let, me, let, let me plumb a little deeper here. It helps what? I was being facetious. Do, <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. How much I is going on right there now? 
Because your question, you had the word I like seven or eight times. It was really powerful. There's a lot of I going on. And it's not the, that the I is bad. The I is beautiful, okay? But the I is going to do everything it can in its power to make sure that it starts doing this. Whoa, 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 right? <laughs> right? And so it's, it's holding on with all its might, right? And what's, what prevents, according to the Buddha, what prevent, and well, actually, not just the Buddha, but what prevents awakening? If you look at all the traditions, they're really clear about this one thing. Clinging. It's the one thing. And so basically, I'm not trying to call you out here, but you're saying, I'm clinging so that I can awaken. Right? And that's exactly what I'm suggesting two things. Number one, keep at it. Okay? And number two, know that you don't have to keep at it. Now, why would I say, why would I say keep at it? Well, so that the process continues. Exactly. Beautiful. And the second part was what? Know that it's okay to stop. Know that it's okay to let go. Know that it's okay. That this disintegration that you're fearing is just one more story to let go of. That the way for you to recognize your infinite nature is to truly become that big. And in order to do that, you have to let go of what's small. <laughs> Any more questions? What if I just float away and never come back? I bet you won't. <laughs> <laughs> but let me know if that's what it feels like. Okay? Yes. Um, during this process and this inquiry and listening to you, um, I'm wondering why there isn't more heart in it. Why there isn't more heart? Heart. And why the heart isn't part of the journey. Sometimes I feel um, like a head with a body in tow. That whole middle part's gone? Yeah, it's like where's yeah. the heart in this work? And it's kind of bothering me because I feel like sure. um, no. I don't think living in my head is the best place to be. Right. And I agree. I hope everything I just said tonight was actually re-emphasizing that. What? Not to live in your head. Well, I think it is saying that. It is saying not to live in your head. No, it's saying that, you know, you have to consciously let go and you have to consciously, you know, mm -hmm. go first identity, second identity, third identity, attachments, this and that. And that's all intellectual. There's no heart in there. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Can I back up? Mm -hmm. There is not one aspect of what you just described that is not heart-centered. Because what I'm asking you to do is what? Let go. That's where heart arises. Heart arises in the surrender of mind, in the surrender of all of this stuff. If you've ever had a heart experience, it's invariably shown up 
because of surrender. Now, having said that, I think it's really easy for this to become a total head practice. You can't, I mean, people can lock up here and awakening happens as the, as the, as the wisdom of oneness, unification, meets this body. And as it meets this body, the wisdom shows up as compassion spontaneously. If it's a heart practice, it tends to be about feeling, right? And if we're all about feeling, guess what the most, the, the most addictive aspects of mind all deal with feeling. So if we keep it, if it's not balanced, if it doesn't have the surrendered aspect to it, heart will never arise. And if it doesn't have actually the mindful aspect to it, then the freedom from thought will never happen. So balancing those two things, wisdom and compassion, balancing those two things together become absolutely imperative. So as much as it, it must have, because it, it, it's, it's striking, I can tell by your face that you're not buying it. So let me, then let me ask you this. What's heart? What would heart be like? So if you're speaking from heart, you're speaking how? What's the difference between speaking from heart and it's speaking from... It's a feeling, okay? And what is a feeling? What is a feeling? Yeah. Words? Uh, or what? A feeling is a thought that pervades the body ex bodily experience. Okay. Now you can start, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with going towards feeling and it's, I always joke about the fact that I don't do hard because I don't have one. <laughs> but I think one of the aspects, what we can lose ourselves, we can lose ourselves in feeling because we want to feel a certain way. We want to lose ourselves in our heads. Oh, That's where it feels out of balance. I didn't finish my sentence. <laughs> we can, we can, that's fine. We can, I'm used to it. Um, we can, oops. We can lose, we can lose ourselves in wanting to feel good, okay? And we can lose ourselves in, you know, repetitive thought. Both are major impediments to awakening. But what's really seductive is feeling good. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about living compassionately and living with loving kindness. Exactly. Everything that I spoke about today is key to that. Because you cannot live compassionately with loving kindness unless you recognize that there is no other. Otherwise, what you're doing is you, you've created a division between self and other and the self is no longer seen through, 
the self is reified. I am compassionate. And that is not awakening. That is an ego that thinks it's awake. Just chew on it, see what you think. Okay, yeah. Yes? Can you give me a trick for repetitive thought? Yeah. You ready? Always. Always. Okay. Re repetitive thought. I'm going to go right back to the Dogen quote. Get curious about it. Okay. Get to its root. And curiosity becomes really, really key in this practice. Because curiosity is wonder. And when you're in wonder, you're no longer caught in your head. Your body is actually involved in this process of curiosity. Curiosity, you watch somebody who really gets curious about something and usually it's kind of, they, you can even see it physically, like, huh. You know, it's like, the, it's like, a, it's like suddenly everything just kind of opens, okay? Get curious about your repetitive thoughts. Get curious about their impulse. See if you can study the impulse without getting caught by the impulse can you watch it? And then when your curiosity begins to become this new center of gravity in relationship to your repetitive thoughts, your repetitive thoughts no longer become annoying, they become quite entertaining, okay? And that usually helps break it up enough to where they begin to lose some of their, not only their inertia, but their power. We disidentify with those repetitive thoughts when we can observe them as they're happening as opposed to like having them and going, uh-oh, right? Then we've got, a re we've got a reaction to the repetitive thinking as opposed to an observation of the source and expression of repetitive thought. Hope that works. Report back. And you report back. I know I must seem like the Grinch, you know, his heart's two sizes too small or whatever, you know? But... Uh, I think this is all, this is great. I really appreciate the question. Thank you for coming tonight. <laughs>